for October 2nd, 2017. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 483. Drive the continent like you stole it. This is Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends, but on the internet. So we're even more friends than your actual friends are because we're virtual friends. Uh, I'm your friend, Matt Rather, and I'm here with your friend, Pete Fenzel. Hello, friend. (laughs) And your other friend, Mark Lee. Buenos dias, amigo. Uh, We're never happier than when we're hanging out uh, with our friends, our real and virtual friends, talking about the movies, uh, the TV shows, the music, all the entertainment and culture things that we love so much. Uh, This week, the Tom Cruise masterpiece, American Made. uh, No, Pete, you mispronounced masterpiece. (laughs) Uh, But uh, before we do that, hey, little bit of overthinking it housekeeping. There are a couple ways in which we track the the anniversary of the Overthinking It podcast. We went weekly. We started the podcast in 2008. We went weekly uh, in October of, or in, uh, I guess, late September uh, with episode 13 of the uh, of the Overthinking It podcast in, in uh, September of 2008, September 29th, actually. And so I have generally used the formula uh, 15, uh, 13 plus 52 times n uh to to calculate the uh the anniversary of the podcast and and by that formula uh 13 plus 52 times 9 that would be um 481 a couple episodes ago but uh because the uh because a year 365 days uh, divided by seven is 52.14 weeks. There's a drift, um, like a, a minuscule drift, but there is a drift uh, in that it's a, a year is a little more than 52 weeks. And we have been doing the podcast long enough that this minuscule mathematical di- drift means that the old formula uh, is now two weeks off of where the, uh, of where the anniversary is. So the, we just passed the anniversary, uh, which was September. 29th. And so this uh, is the first episode after nine years of, of weekly, without fail, weekly um, overthinking it podcast. So, uh, I mean, I guess the first thing to say is thank you for listening. If you've been listening for all nine years, God bless you. <laughs> Because uh, <laughs> because you are you are the real hero, but uh, but thank you also, uh, Pete and Mark, the most stalwart of the overthinking it of the overthinking it podcasters, and and I don't know, do you have any reflections uh, on turning nine now? You know, um, I just I we got to find a guest named Gregory that we can have on to correct those two weeks. We have a, a Gregorian <laughs> podcast calendar that's been corrected, although I'm not sure exactly how that would work. No, this has been great. This has been one of the most, um, uh, the one of the most Long, regular, long-lasting in relationships in any of our, <laughs> in any of our lives. You know. Yeah, and I would also say that it's a ton of material. There's just a ton of stuff. I, I look forward to someday being able to show someone who cares. 
from some who didn't know me during this time the development of like my thinking and and everything that i experienced i mean it's a really cool historical record we should press it onto nickel discs and send it into space <laughs> so that it can be preserved and that way aliens can really wonder what everyone thought about the chronicles of riddick seven years after it came out <laughs> <laughs> ghost rider ghost rider so, spirit of vengeance right look we're, we're, we're not always on time but we're always there when you call that's that's all i'm saying <laughs> um mark what do you think about about nine years uh, I'm shocked that I'm still here. Not gonna lie. <laughs> like no, alive? Like that you're not dead? No, no, no. I, I, I'm shocked that I have, I have managed to keep up with you guys oh. and have maintained a place on this esteemed panel. Um, because you know, I, I, I look up to you. I, this is uh, it, it's. I'm not trying. Are you are you are you are you addressing the listeners now? Because we all look up to them. Oh yes, yes, definitely to, to the listeners. But uh, I'm I'm specifically referring to the two of you, Matthew Rather. And Pete Fenzel, um, because you were a year and two years um, uh, above me in college, and I showed up, a young, wide-eyed freshman, not knowing the sophisticated ways of college students, coming from the, the, the country, from Alabama, unsophisticated folk, um, and I show up at that band, all the social events, uh, and all that kind of stuff, and you guys are just riffing on each other a million miles an hour, and I'm just sitting back like, what is happening? Uh, I, I don't know what is happening, but I enjoy this. Uh, but I cannot possibly aspire to achieve such levels any day. And, you know, you've gone on to uh, do all this, you know, formal acting training and improv comedy training and things like that. And uh, you, the, the, the two of you got skills is what I'm saying. You got lots of skills. Oh. Um, and I come along for the ride. And oh, I try my you. best. I think you I throw in my witty bon mot every once in a while. I try to, you know, bring things back down uh, a little bit closer to the uh, to terra firma when you guys get up in the very highly intellectual stratosphere. Um, so I, I'm 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 amazed that I'm still here and doing this, and I'm very glad that I can still do it. I've said before. Well, thank you, Mark. Like that's uh, that's awfully nice, and I I, I don't mean to uh, I don't mean to trivialize your compliment, only to deflect it. Uh, and that's uh, but it's it's much appreciated. I think that uh, uh, I think that you got plenty of skills yourself. Um, if if no we're, doubt. No yeah, doubt. if we're honest, uh, I I am taken with what Pete says about the kind of the sheer accumulated tonnage of broadcasting that we've done here. I mean, you know, almost uh, almost five hundred hours of overthinking it podcasts, almost three hundred hours of TFT podcasts. That like it's it's amazing that that that's like a non trivial section of life to have been speaking into microphones for. You yeah, know? it's a not trivial amount of ego that it takes for someone to decide that they have that much to say that the rest of the world wants to listen to well fortunately so, it's it's like it's an on-demand medium so like anyone who's not interested in it is you know is free to unsubscribe uh right and i'd, I'd rather uh, very often you know right i'd rather speak to the right people um you know the people who who are going to be thrilled by thrilled by what we do than then change what we do to have a uh to have a mass to have a mass audience but yeah you could probably like trace a lot of our the trajectory of our adult lives by going back to the uh you know remember remember when a uh, when a, a pyramid made of root beer cans in your basement was a thing that we joked about a lot like that, that oh was, yeah yeah that, that was a real thing <laughs> Diet root beer, by the way. Oh, sorry, of course. I used to drink absurd amounts of diet root beer. That that's true. I've replaced it with other things in my life, like love and companionship. <laughs> but 
I would I would both recommend that others do it, but also also say, you know what, for everything there is a season. <laughs> so turn, turn, turn. <laughs> you know, like uh tis a gift to be simple. <laughs> anyway. As it were. So so nine years. Listen, the the let's uh let's open the phone lines, right? Like two oh three two eight five six four zero one uh and uh podcast at overthinking it dot com. If you if you care to share a thought on the uh, the ninth anniversary of the of the Overthinking It podcast, we'd love to make your voice part of this, uh, you know, part of this commemoration. And uh, if you uh, do it in the next week, we'll uh, read a couple of them or play a couple of them on the next episode. Podcast at overthinkingit.com or the phone number 203-285-6401. I haven't said the phone number uh, in a long time. Is that right? 203-285-6401. Well, you'll either hear my voice on the voicemail machine, a voicemail thing that records an MP3 or else, uh, you know, or else you can uh, just, just tell some random person who you who answers the phone what you think of the Overthinking It podcast. Uh, so yeah, do that or email us or email us a voice memo or something something like that. We'd love to hear uh, any thoughts that you might have on this auspicious occasion. All right. Uh, speaking of of things that like this podcast are American made. <laughs> no, go on. <laughs> we uh, we all watched Tom Cruise's latest film uh, recently, and and I was sort of pleasantly I was pleasantly surprised uh, by this movie, and I thought that that there would be that there would be a lot to talk about. Um, actually, speaking of speaking of uh, this weekend, there were three R-rated comedies in the one uh, not comedies. Well, it's kind of a comedy. Uh, three R-rated movies in a in. Uh, in the the one two and three spots at the box office, which is which is unusual. And as I was talking, as you do here in LA, as I was talking to the bartender at the you know reserved seating movie theater uh, about the film I was going to see, the uh, the bartender, also named Matt, uh, coincidentally, said to me, "You know, I have friends who say that R-rated Tom Cruise uh, is superior." to PG-13 rated Tom Cruise these days. Um, is that, I mean, is this R-rated Tom Cruise? And, do we, and how do we think that he does uh, in this, in this, uh, in the, wait, 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 I'm getting way ahead of myself. This film is about a pilot who starts <laughs> <laughs> right i just like realized we're about to launch into like a meta discourse without uh without uh even doing the thing hey hey mark i'm up here in the stratosphere can you ground me a little <laughs> bit what is this movie about it's about uh, satisfying needs <laughs> certain uh, certain requirements in life for uh high velocity um, and to put it in layman's terms, you feel the need for speed. And I'm not talking about speed the drug because they're not doing that in this movie. They're moving cocaine. I'm talking instead about the meta casting of Tom Cruise as a hotshot pilot, of course, referring to his 80s classic uh, Top Gun um, and, and, and how the hat factors heavily into the, the experience of watching this movie. Um, the, the thought experiment occurred to me earlier. Like, imagine if, I don't know, Matthew McConaughey. Is in this movie instead. How is it different? How is it the same? Uh, I think it uh, would still be enjoyable, but would not have the same, uh, st- quite the same sense of joy 
that Tom Cruise as a pilot brings to this movie. I would venture to say, and also, by the way, this movie is the big short of Contra, is what this is. This is the movie that it's also uh, American Hustle meets Air America. If you ever watched the 1990 Mel Gibson, Robert Downey Jr. film Air America, which is also about a front commercial U.S. airline uh, flying drugs to uh, enable a or enable various sorts of interventions in a civil war that America is intervening with, uh, you know, overseas. So Air America, very similar uh, historical events is being profiled, uh, except it's Contra instead of Laos. Uh, it's about Contra and Ronald Reagan. It has a lot of narration that explains to you what's happening. That's sort of cutesy, like the big short, although not quite as high concept. And it's kind of like American Hustle because it's a period piece about the late 70s and early 80s. It has a lot of period music, a lot of period outfits. All that said, I would say that this is a performance by PG-13 Tom Cruise, not R-rated Tom Cruise. I don't know why the movie – the movie's rated R because has lots of cocaine in it. But if the co- if you replace the cocaine with literally anything else, I don't think the movie – well, that's not yeah, true. Well, and, yeah, and his, his, improbably, his improbably young and good-looking wife, right, like is, uh, is in a, you know, lacy chemise at one point. Yeah. And I would say that the reason that this is PG-13 Tom Cruise and also the main reason that Matthew McConaughey would be different in this movie is that Tom Cruise injects a ton of physical flailing energy into a lot of the scenes in this movie. There's a scene where he arrives at a Contra camp with uh, – and, and the previous time he arrived, they stole his glasses. So this time he's arrived. He's bringing them guns, but they don't want the guns. They want to rob him personally. So he arrives with boxes of pornography and booze to give to them, and he like shoves the boxes out with a Louisville Slugger baseball bat to sort of keep them at arm's length. And the thing is shot like he's a Megazord from, from ground level up. And there's this just – this lunging and this connection activity that he has with the baseball bat while he's shoving the boxes around that feels a lot like uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Like aging PG-13 Tom Cruise who injects a ton of running and, and vivaciousness, but also just physical acting into all of his, his roles. Whereas Matthew McConaughey is much more subdued uh, physically and, and would project his intensity verbally and, and a little bit in silence, but mostly through sort of imposing and his gestures would be more with sort of with his hands and his face, as opposed to like bending one knee. Like there's a move, there's a scene in this movie where Tom Cruise like digs a hole for a, a duffel bag full of cash shirtless. And that scene with Tom Cruise and that scene with Matthew McConaughey are fundamentally different with regards to the shirtlessness, the shoveling, how it's all conducted. Uh, this one felt like something out of an Ingmar Bergman movie. It's just like frenetic and just like thrashing. So it lacks the subtlety of what I would describe as R-rated Tom Cruise uh, but, and has instead the kinetic energy of PG-13 rated Tom Cruise. That's how I would have so, it. So this is a movie about a pilot. <laughs> airplanes and, don't fly themselves in the 70s and 80s and he well, starts sort of he starts flying covert missions to take pictures for the cia because he had a little side hustle that was illegal importing he gets like uh, uh importing or like uh flying contraband from cuba into canada and he gets caught doing this by the cia they strong armed him into doing this he ends up uh, running drugs for the medellin cartel uh uh, ends up arming the Contras in um, 
Central America and, uh, you know, and on and on and on. Uh, all the while, he romances his wife, played by the actress Sarah Wright, uh, who is a woman who was not born when Tom Cruise released Risky Business in 1983. <laughs> she was like, how about I wear underwear in this movie? And he's like, I've never done that. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> he's, uh, when uh, she, she, uh, Risky Business was two months old when Tom Cruise's wife in this movie was was uh, was born, and then there it it follows a predictable sort of trajectory for movies. Not only if you know the history, but also if you know stories of this type, which is that there is a there are some like crazy good times uh, followed by by a crash, um, not a plane crash. Uh, but followed by a, uh, you know, the, the, the Piper, the Piper has to be paid and Pete's, Pete's right. He does, he does sort of, he does flail and, uh, he does flail and really, really go at it. I mean, he didn't go at it with the Tom Cruise, like intense stare and like, and focal intensity, you know, the way you imagine Tom Cruise is going to talk right and that was not uh that was that was not really that was not really in evidence but it but it was like it's interesting his his sort of um how how his journey into to middle age has been right like the idea of sort of vitality and the idea of um the idea of uh, virility, you know, and and how those things, energy and power, right, are are sort of sublimated into into the airplanes, um, and the different ways that they, that they're sublimated into the airplanes, right? Where whereas in the the famous J. Hoberman review of uh, Top Gun in the Village Voice was called Phallus in Wonderland. Uh, and, um, the, and, you know, just went from like the, you know, the close up of the thumb hitting the button on the stick that launched the missile out of the airplane. And like, it was, it, it was just like, it was a sort of bravura performance of not exactly criticism, but, but, uh, something more like, something more like what we have, what we had in the, in the blog era of like snark, um, on, on Top Gun. But this is not, I mean, I feel like the relationship relationship between the man and the airplane you know uh is is a little different right like the scene of maverick would never be in the scene where uh the first time he does the drug drop right where he is you know puts the autopilot on but then has to like descend real low but then like pulls the the floor panel out and starts frantically dropping drugs out of the bottom of the airplane doing that drop um like there is a kind of there is a sort of uh, Lucy in the Chocolate Factory, almost slapstick um, quality to it. That that you know, I don't know. It's there's a different relationship to the between the man and the machine, and I think that has to do with um, I think that has to do with with aging uh, somehow. I mean, do, l- let me ask a, a basic question. Like as, as the character, did you like this character in, in the movie? Like, were you rooting for this guy, Pete, while you were watching the film? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. I me mean, t- I wasn't rooting me too. for him. Yeah. 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 Like, cause here's the thing. 
it's like a Breaking Bad Sopranos kind of story in that it's about a guy who has a middle class life that then turns to crime for reasons that are sort of related to wanting to be cooler and more masculine than what he feels like in his life. But this guy didn't really feel very privileged. <laughs> like, like he didn't feel like his middle class life was like actually comfortable or good. He was exhausted. He worked so hard. And and his also his wife was from a poor background and even mentions what that she prior to marrying him, she'd worked at a KFC and didn't really have a concept of money. And so this sense of like the money as an offer to this guy who like grew up in Louisiana and like happened to become an airline pilot because he joined the National Guard in the 60s. Uh, the, the, I didn't feel like this was a condemnation of him, nor did I particularly believe the narrations or feel like the narrations were earned in the movie that this was had something to do with loving America or America being a thing that was uh, related to why these things were happening. That all felt very forced. The, the, the way that Tom Cruise imbues the guy as a, as a guy who sort of like wants to feel competent and takes the jobs that make him feel competent uh, that I identified with. And, and the fact that he was very kind of skilled and professional at doing it and had to work with people who are less skilled and professional at doing it is also going to be very sympathetic in the sort of heel-to-face dichotomy. He's definitely, he's definitely a face. He's not a heel. He's a highly skilled guy who plays uh, by a series of rules and who tries to tell people who try to break the rules that they should listen to the rules and pay attention to the rules and who manages to win when he wins because of his technical skill. That would classify him as a face and a good guy and somebody that you would want to root for, independent of the consequences of his actions, whether they end up like putting someone through a steel chair or throwing them out of the ring, something along those lines. He gets to self-actualize, I think mm. it's fair to say, right? He becomes really his true and full self, which I don't think you really get to say of a villain um, in that sort of like they either, either come on the scene as a villain or um, if they're perverted into villainous, and it's like kind of, again, like uh, the key word there being perversion, uh, uh, something that is contrary to their true self. I mean, it's, yeah. it seems to me like in some of the, some of the other trajectories, like the Walter White one is probably the, the best one to compare it to. Um, there, there's this emphasis on choice, right? And, and there's this emphasis in kind of how in Breaking Bad, uh, what he does gives him, gives his true self the, the sort of the ability to kind of emerge and, and stretch its legs, uh, stretch its legs a little bit. And, and I wonder if Tom Cruise in, in American Made isn't more of a tragic hero than that, right? Mm. Because if you sort of think about it, given the set of circumstances, given the, like, the combination of personality and circumstances, I'm not sure that there's, that there was a time to go another way, right? Because it's clear that he can't ever say no to the CIA. I guess he could, he could sort of say, I won't run drugs for the Medellin cartel, but they, you know, they kidnap him and intimidate him. And, uh, you know, that this is, uh, you know, that that really along the way, um, at all the moments uh, where there's kind of a crucial decision, it seems like his his hand is forced, and he's sort of frantically improvising to try to make something uh, to try to make something good happen. Right, and his last, he sort of in a Freudian sense. There, they sort of, there's the thin, what is it, fanatic, than, thanatos or what have you is present in that he seems to arrive at death on his own terms in the way that he sought to. 
And in that sense, there's a certain culmination or satisfaction in what he does. Like he knows it's going to happen. And and especially the part at the end of the movie where he's like going to be killed. And every time he starts his car, he tells everyone to back away from it so that they aren't killed by the blast. <laughs> Definitely makes him seem wise <laughs> as to like he understands what he's gotten himself into. He under he's like Seneca, right? He's he understands that the emperor one day is going to tell him to kill himself and he's going to have to do it. Uh, but he's trying to make the best and and not use the absurdity of his situation to completely obliterate his moral self. Which, by the way, I don't think we can believe any of this is like the true story at all. Uh, I don't think that I don't think that there's much reason to believe that Barry Seal is that moral of a man, the real guy. Uh, certainly, I don't think we can say that he necessarily put as much pain and effort into safeguarding the comfort and safety of his wife and kids, uh, right? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that, that I don't think that that is. I think that's for the movie. Uh, but anyway, it's um, it just he definitely seems like every decision that he makes takes him down this path. He is the gringo who delivers. That's kind of what he does. He is a he is tossed around by institutions. He's almost kind of like he would be almost like a German expressionist figure if he were more upset, which he is not. <laughs> if he were just like, why, why is this happening to me? You know, like I tried to join the army, but they were in Vietnam and it was crazy. So I tried to get out of it and join TWA, but it was soul crushing. And why, why is there no room for me in the world? But no, he's just like, well, I lived in the South and I knew the swamp. So I dumped the cocaine in the swamp and uh, then I went around and did it again because that's what they needed. <laughs> you know, like that's, it's, um, it's different. It's definitely yeah. different. But this is a bit of a tangent, but it connects back to what we're talking about earlier with the lack of the intense Tom Cruise thing that we're so used to in this, um, which is juxtaposed with Pete, where you were just doing there, which is the Southern draw, right? It's the slow down Southern accent of, yeah. of, of Tom Cruise, which he pulls off reasonably good. I'm not going to pull out my awful Southern accent because I spent years trying to lose that uh, from my growing up in the South. Um, but uh, it, it is a different side of Tom Cruise, right? I mean, he still managed to, to bring a certain intensity and I guess we called it flailing earlier. Um, but uh, the the I, I don't know. Have we seen a southern southern fry Tom Cruise before? Is this his first turn with a southern accent? Was he southern in Days of Thunder? Um, That's a I'm good trying question. to remember. I'm trying to remember. Probably maybe not. I just remember him staring very intensely. He he's like the epitome of American. Um, uh, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know where where you pronounce the words very crisply. Um. Enunciation. American mm-hmm. enunciation is Tom Cruise. Need for speed. Um, but he loses that in this. And it's just uh, it, it's it's pleasing to hear that, if nothing else. Um, it, it does also bring up something else. And I guess let's, let's use this as an opportunity to pivot to the uh, what exactly it means for this movie to be American made. Uh, the, the southernness, it, it shows up quite a bit in this. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that uh, when Tom Cruise pulls up in the expensive Cadillac, he hits the horn and it's a Dixie horn. And this is the second week in a row where we've been discussing a movie uh, where a car has had a Dixie horn. Uh, <laughs> lest you forget, right? Kingsman, uh, when one of the American uh, members of the Kingsman uh, team pulls up to the house. And, and in England, he hits the horn and, and then it plays Dixie. Uh, and uh, the Confederate flag is seen multiple times in this movie. And I guess both in Kingsman and in American made um, uh, uh, the American South in particular is meant to stand out for the sense of America. Now, granted in 
uh, American made, you also have the the looming specter of the federal government and the CIA and all the and Ronald Reagan and things like that, which uh, complement the Southern fried nature of, uh, of of Tom Cruise's character. But uh, the South was really played up pretty strongly in this. And I was curious to hear what you guys thought about uh, how that is or isn't significant. I, I, I had a real trouble thinking of this movie as very American. Hmm. Uh, I really did, because so many of the events that happen happen either outside of the United States. Right. Uh, or, or, or specifically within a sort of institution of power that is not present in the United States, such as like the, the like Contras and Sandinistas, that kind of that kind of rebellion or the drug cartel. And this idea, even even Schaefer, the CIA guy, has to stress to Tom Cruise that he is not a cop. He can't do anything about search warrants. Stressing him, he's outside of the of the American system that Tom Cruise is familiar with. And so, I, I had difficulty thinking of this movie as American made, and I kind of wondered whether it had some sort of other title at some point that they changed it to, because I, I can see how there's part of the movie where they're trying to say. You thought, for some reason, you haven't watched any TV or movies over the course of the last 20 years, and you thought America was this perfect place where everybody did the right thing in suburbia, everybody was happy. Let's expand that to 30 years. You haven't watched any TV or movies in 30 years, and you still believe that like America is a place where everybody does the right thing all the time, and, and cowboys with white hats are good guys, and cowboys with black hats are bad guys. You didn't actually believe that the American government does corrupt things, that American business people are, are do corrupt things, that there's drug trade, that that people who are white can deal drugs. You know, like these are all things. I mean, I, maybe it's even stuff that's come out mostly in the last 10 years in the culture as being like sort of shocking at first, but not really anymore. There's this like indictment of like, you, you know, that, that this whole thing with drugs and the CIA and Contra Nicaragua, like the America was saying that they were being the good guys the whole time. And they weren't. And it's like, well, yeah, but like, <laughs> but like, but like nobody. There's like no two people in this movie that agree on what the plan should be at any time, <laughs> right? Like, like Tom Cruise isn't even re- in the scope of this movie. Tom Cruise isn't even really doing what the government wants him to do, and that's not saying that that's not to absolve the government of responsibility. That's more to say that this whole thing doesn't at least seem systemically orchestrated as much as a product of the chaos of large systems that like the CIA wants to do one very specific thing. It overestimates the amount of control it has over the situation. And it also underestimates or, or it doesn't care. It only wants to do one thing. It doesn't care about the other things that happen. I think that's what Schaefer even says. He's when Tom Cruise says, I need more money. And Schaefer says to him, well, you'll figure something out. I think what he's saying is what he's saying there is you could use this opportunity as an informant to do illegal things for your own profit and we're going to look the other way and he even gives him the satchel back that uh, full of the drug money basically saying look because I can't get you more budget to do this and I need you to stay on this project you can continue doing this thing that was your idea and we're not going to punish you for it and that's a little bit different than saying Take this cocaine and bring it to Nicaragua, <laughs> and because the because the government wants you to hook people in the third world on cocaine, all right, and, and also take this vial of AIDS and spread it, right? Because the government invented AIDS, right? Like that's that's when I think about when I think about people who. Well, not people. But when I think about when you really want to blame America for making things bad, you have to be talking about stuff that's really bad. And I know that Pablo Escobar is a very bad man, but it's kind of condescending and racist to 
think of Pablo Escobar as made in America because uh, he, he's not American. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, his, his market is by and large American. But like, let's attribute to the guy some of his own agency, for Christ's sake. It's not just the white guy who happened to fly the plane who created Pablo Escobar. Like that's that is like the ultimate in fantasy football. You know, like, oh, man, you know, well, my my Tom Brady beat your Peyton Manning and therefore I'm better. It's like, no, you didn't even play in the game. What are you talking about? Huh. I'm sorry, Matt. What did you think about the Americanness of the movie? Well, I mean, it's I, like in these movies, like American Hustle. I was thinking about American Pimp. Yeah, there are two. Yep. There, there's like a positive claim and a comparative claim that's that that are related but distinct in in titles like this, right? Like because it's one like th- there's there's something said about pimpness and something said about Americanness or uh, or American pimpness, right? Like this is this is the story of a hustle. And it's a story of a hustle that could only happen in America is sort of sort of uniquely uh uniquely American. So like what is American made? Right? Like Are they saying like North and South America? Because maybe that's what they mean. <laughs> they no, should I mean... call it America's made. Because it doesn't happen in America. It mostly happens in Latin America. Uh... <laughs> but it's America. Latin America's America too, right? Yeah, it's, well it's, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the yeah, I mean, like drive it like a drive it like you stole it, uh, drive the continent like you stole it because you did um, from the 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 you know Incas or or whoever they met uh, down there in Hispaniola. Um, the uh, you know so so what in this movie is American made? Like not uh, the cocaine. You know, <laughs> not any of the interesting characters in in the cartels, right? Like, um, I and and I think that like, I think that what is American made is like enterprise, right? The idea, the idea of a because what he does is like exploit market inefficiencies you know like he's a he is a good capitalist he's a good person for sort of finding you know finding the needs of a market and kind of delivering them and like uh he's apparently very good at his job right like they say they they uh they make fun of the fedex tagline and say when it absolutely positively has to get there overnight you get Barry seal you know and uh there's some I mean, there's something about about that. Like, there's there's this is sort of the story of a hustle that is American, um, and and so what's like what's American is, are sort of like the dollar bills, you know, that sort of multiply like gremlins that that fill up every conceivable space. Um, and there's this like solidity. There's this. I I like that the the I like how the the cash, the actual cash money, um, both fills up like bags, duffel bags, so that it's it's you know a big, massy, difficult to move sort of thing, and also kind of breaks apart into a million butterflies right mm. when when the wind when like the wind it, you know and that like it it both has this sort of single thingness and this solidity and this the kind of uncontrollability of a million winged uh winged objects so i feel like so so i mean i feel like a couple things are american made one is like it's a, it's a story about a certain kind of like economic agency and the other thing is that it's a story about sort of self uh 
self-narrativization, like a, being a self-made, being a self-made man, right? Like there's no sort of career path for the Barry Seals of this world, right? There's no sort of structured bonus I mean, program. There's no. Uh, if he stayed with the airline. No, well, yeah, I, yeah, no, I'm not. I don't mean as a class. I don't mean uh, for airline pilots. I mean yeah. for drug drug smugglers. Let's face it. Let's face facts. There's no career path for airline pilots. <laughs> you go in there. You walk into the airport. You could be. You could have your a gun in your mouth. You don't even know. <laughs> it's <laughs> you don't. You're going to be going to Buffalo with the 115 or whether it's going to get pushed back to 330. It's a world of chaos. <laughs> no promises. I mean, airline pilots are some of the like the the most consistently and best trained professionals <laughs> in, uh, you know, in the in the entire workforce. Like when you yeah. if you like research a little bit into what they have to do to stay current, um also how limited the specialties are like you are rated on one aircraft you know uh and and changing changing types of plane is um is a big deal something that movies like this gloss over routinely where it's like oh i can fly so i can fly anything right like and like flying that uh you know flying the the small uh twin prop planes that that they're smuggling the drugs in are is very very different from flying the uh the you know the army cargo plane the sea whatever it is that they do the 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 last um the the last run in to take pictures of the the escobars right like those those are practically different jobs um but Matt, for what it's, it's worth it's believable because it's tom cruise and he is the greatest pilot <laughs> in the history of movies i mean he so. actually like he actually is a pilot isn't he he's like uh, oh really oh, john travolta he he actually flies is isn't he i don't I think know he actually flies in this movie this is sort of like a patrick stewart driving the dune buggy in star trek nemesis kind of movie, right <laughs> where like tom wow. cruise is like i get to I fly the plane right that, I, I wasn't expecting that reference but sure let's <laughs> let's go he's like well i love off-roading and they wrote a script that was terrible but i asked do i get to drive a dune buggy and they said yes <laughs> So here I am. <laughs> like, that's the, the Star Trek nemesis story. Uh, but um, to go back to something you said, Matt, that it's I no, love to... It's no Star Trek insurrection. I'll, I'll just say that. <laughs> yeah, to dig into something you said a little bit more, I if I were to name this movie, I would call it something like American Kilos or something along those lines. Because uh, uh, what, what you identified... Exactly, yeah. Because what you identified with the money, to me, the way that the money changes apparent size and shape while also changing sort of inapparent and implied size and shape i thought was really cool and then there's a whole lot of this sort of stuff happening through the movie uh and it, i'm thinking about the scene where they're throwing where they're having the party the drug lords are having the party and they're throwing the the stacks of bills the bill rolls and and bill stacks into the bull pit and people have to run out and grab the money before the bull gets them and I'm thinking about the scene where Tom Cruise, one of my favorite, probably my favorite scene in the movie, where Tom Cruise is confronting 
the reality that his six-month pregnant wife does not really want to live in an empty house in Arkansas to flee uh, law enforcement. And she says that she needs things like a refrigerator and a washing machine and a dishwasher. And he throws the stacks of bills into the empty spaces of the apartment. And he says, that's a refrigerator. That's a dishwasher. Yeah. And, and, and the money – and you can, almost, you can almost see the money take the shape. If it were the big short, they would have a little CGI effect where it like actually took the shape of a dishwasher. But instead, you see the, the money lying on the ground. And the money – I describe this movie as an analog movie in which one sort of media gets transduced into another side of media but doesn't get fully informationalized in that like a dishwasher can't become numbers on a check, but it can become a wad of cash, and they can translate back and forth. Everything has weight. Um, there's also over, yeah. yeah. There's also like the idea of fungible commodities is that they don't they don't kind of retain. It's not. This is like pre blockchain, right? Like <laughs> it doesn't retain. It's not only um, right. I think I'm not doing this. Someone, someone, well, actually, me uh, who knows more about this than I do, which is anyone who knows anything about well, it. But I the, mean, you're, the, you're, I, I get the idea, yeah, the idea of like this blockchain, uh, the idea of cryptocurrencies in general is that you can you can encode in whatever the the hash is, whatever the kind of the information, not only the current state of affairs, but also something about the history of of where it's where it's been, right? Like, and yeah. that like this is not supposed to be true in an analog world where like if you trans if you what did you say transduce cash or if you transduce kilos of of cocaine which by the way like there's another like iconic visual right the kilo of cocaine wrapped up in plastic um just as as iconic in its way as the ten, the stack of ten thousand uh, dollars, you know, in hundreds with the the paper band wrapped around it, um, and the uh, like the when you transduce the um, kilos into the cash, the transformation is supposed to be complete, right? There's not supposed to be any residual drugs left mm-hmm. on the cash. And one of the things about one of the things about this movie is that like that that transformation is a failure, right? Like the money, even though it's supposed to be money and any money, any cash anyway is equally good, um is equally uh you know, currency like like legal tender, um it's not it the the taint like is is transduced as well. This is a movie about transduced taint, uh, and it's um, <laughs> and that like uh, yeah. not going to be the title, not the <laughs> title. Add, veto veto right now. <laughs> to add to that, my favorite line in the movie, the line that I felt defined the movie was in that great scene where he's trying, where he's going to take off from the short runway in the prop plane for the first time loaded with drugs. And they keep wanting to put more drugs in the plane. And he, he's a pilot. And so he understands that if there's too much on the plane, the plane won't be able to take off and rise above the tree line, which is very close to the short runway. And, uh, and this actually is right before he has a situation with the big fat guy in the passenger seat where he's like, I can't carry this big fat guy and all these drugs. Drugs, uh, the plane can't do it, and and they, they all the people are yelling at him in Spanish and pointing at the plane and yelling at him in English a little bit and pointing at the plane and saying, you know, though there's more room in the plane, we need to put more drugs in the plane, and, and because this is if this run makes it, we all stand to make a ton of money, so we want to put we have all these drugs here, they don't have anywhere to go, let's put them on the plane, and, and he says, no, no, no. 
it, it's not the room, it's the weight. It's not the amount of space that the drugs take up, it's the weight that they have. And I felt like that was the sort of, in, in so far as much as the movie is kind of symbolically in, visually interesting, that line felt like the mission statement for me. Because with the cash, it's not about the room. Because it is sort of about the room in this movie and that like, oh, they got to pack the cash in the briefcases. They got to put the cash in the closet, bury it in the backyard. They have so much cash, they literally don't know where to put it. But it's not about the room. It's about the weight. It's about the weight of that cash, what burden it carries with it. As you've said, it's not clean. It gets laundered, but it's not clean. And not even all of it gets laundered. And this this idea of how much can Tom Cruise keep above the ground? These planes all fly really low and very heavily laden throughout this movie. And there's, I felt like there's this sense that the whole thing is just sort of being held up and hoisted by a series of harnesses, perhaps held by Ving Rhames in a ventilation shaft, or maybe by the guy from Leon the Professional, just holding Tom Cruise like a foot and a half above the ground as he hacks into the knock list. Uh, but no, this is, again, PG-13 Tom Cruise who suspends himself above things, who grabs onto rocks and ledges and sides of planes. But everything is sort of hefted just a little bit off, off the ground, and it's a question of who can carry the weight. You know, JB can't carry the weight. He gets too tired even from mopping the floor. So his physical fatigue is representative of his his uh, personal inability to handle, his emotional inability to handle, and also his sort of like social, legal, resourcefulness, professional, professional really, ability to handle the reality of his business situation. And sort of like he actually – to, to cap that off, when Tom Cruise leaves the courthouse, there's this wonderful little moment when, when time in this whole movie in which like things have been loaded on planes and loaded off planes and they're too heavy or they're too light and little pieces of money come to represent huge appliances and and uh, the 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 cocaine is really heavy but it gets a life jacket duct taped to it so that it floats, which I thought was a wonderful little poetical. Uh, uh, ambiguity there. But when Tom Cruise gets sentenced with a thousand hours of community service for his global druggering enablement, and he like walks out of the courthouse kind of dumbfounded. And of course, the community service is a death sentence, although I don't know if the judge knows this. Um, and he, he like he reaches out and he touches the concrete pedestal on which the column is resting that supports the edifice of the courthouse. And, and in this shot, Tom Cruise is very, very small, and the courthouse is very, very big, and the columns are huge and heavy. And there's this sense that Tom Cruise is confronting a weight that's so big that not even he would be the one to carry it, and that the country is carrying it. That it's sort of like, wow, I think I'm carrying a lot of drugs. The country is carrying so many drugs. The country is carrying so much of this stuff, this this sin. Uh, but it's not sin as opposed to virtue. It's sort of sin as opposed to what else you can do with your time. Yeah. So <laughs> like, uh, this is a good moment to tie it back to the original question I had, which is about like what's the southernness of this movie, mm. um, which is that uh, America is is laden down with the weight of of slavery, <laughs> right. right? The Confederacy. Um, and I mean, it also speaks to this idea that um, what was this? What was the Confederate South but a criminal enterprise, right? That was stealing labor from people, and that uh, you know this uh, this movie is all. About the criminal enterprise of drug running, um, right. well, other things as well too. But that, um, but uh, to, to move past that and to, to, to carry this different direction, you know who floats through this movie weightless? Schaefer. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, nothing touches him. 
Yeah. So I mean, like, does he have a bit of a sort of allegorical meaning in all this? I and mean, he, he, it's amazing, right? He gets off completely consequence free for all the ridiculously stupid things that he does, right? And then he, um, the events, you know, he gets the Iranians involved in it at the very end, um, and presumably escapes consequence for all of it, right? Like, right. What is what does he represent? Sort of the uh, in the American allegory of this whole thing. It's interesting. I thought Schaefer was an interesting character first and foremost because he had a beard. And this movie is kind of copying American Hustle. Well, I guess he he has a beard throughout the entire movie. And in American Hustle, a lot of the people have beards and mustaches because it's the 70s. But by the time the events of American Made are happening, I kind of feel like, especially for people who work for the government, beards are very much out of fashion. Beards are – they're not something that – this is a point in time in American history where white people turned away from facial hair mm-hmm. from like the 80s into the 90s. In fact, it's, it, probably, uh, it probably starts it's in, contempor- the, in the 40s. It's contemporaneous with the Americans, right, in terms of yes. the like, 80s purity piece? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And, and like there's a cyclicality to fashion obviously. But like the, with America, it's sort of like Americans stop wearing facial hair when they we have wars where people have to shave. And 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 this is this idea that in like World War One, it's also where we turn away from suspenders and towards belts because we don't have a sort of fashion capital. So we respond to sort of the military and setting, at least for men's fashion for most of the 20th century, is like dictated by military life and institutional life. And Tom Cruise has the clean cut look of an airline pilot, which becomes shaggier through, but never really very shaggy. Remains very sort of clean cut. Uh, but yeah, but but so so by because. Schaefer had a beard, he struck me as a sort of subversive. Like like a beard at that point in American history, I think, is identified as something somewhat communist. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah. it's countercultural, right? Rather yeah. than rather than being one of the, you know, one of the good Yale men of the CIA, uh, right. you know, toppling governments and, you know, I don't know, funding revolutions and stuff. Right. Like, ideally, what Schaefer should be is some sort of like, first of all, Schaefer is too young to be doing the job that he's doing. In this movie, and I and I say that because Schaefer is very clearly very Republican. Like <laughs> I, I feel like Schaefer Schaefer in this movie is not just representing the American government, but is very much representing the Republican government and very much representing the Hawks against the Cold War. And so, who appointed him? Like like where did he get his job? Yeah, in the like, car- right like, exactly. Like what what Carter political appointee director of the CIA like put in place a bunch of policies that hired that guy, right? Yeah, this guy should be a Nixon guy. Yeah. And he doesn't look like a Nixon guy, as we all know from watching Mad Men. Like this is like uh, a Nixon guy does not wear a beard, and I guess it's not just because he looks like a hippie. And he and he, if he really hates communists as much as he says it, well, he doesn't even really say he hates communists. He just sort of does his job, and I think that's what it comes around to is that in order for him to feel American, I have to feel like he represents some sort of coherent idea that I would identify with an American. But instead, Schaefer is sort of a god figure, kind of like a like a sort of shamanic demigod, like a sort of mythological figure who sort of shows up to rep- really Uncle Sam is mentioned a bunch of times, and Schaefer is, but Uncle Sam is also clean shaven, but. Uncle Sam, but Schaefer is sort of the Uncle Sam figure who shows up to sort of represent the interests of the government, but he doesn't do it in a way that to me is identifiable with any personage that 
that would be involved in a human government. Wait, like Uncle, he's Sam, a, Uncle Sam has a, a goatee beard, doesn't he? Oh, he does? Oh, that's true. He has, has like a scraggly one. Yeah, the little puff yeah. of, he has the little, little, you know, puff of, of cotton coming off his, his lower yeah. lip there. Yeah. But, but yeah, but basically like, as we all know from watching, if we've been paying attention to politics over the last even 20 years, we know that one of the things that governments do is when they change administrations, they clean house ideologically a little bit. Or at the very least, they lean towards appointing people who are more sympathetic to them rather than to the other side. And and as we know from Nixon, he was a big fan of, of knowing what side people were on. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. It just sort of seems like this guy in his career would have been a, a young Republican in the time of Nixon. And as such, he does not strike me as authentically American, having a beard and being like sort of a hipstery guy. He looks like a guy from the Verizon commercial. Yeah. A slight, well, actually, and we see yeah. this being events now in the Trump administration, actually, which is that uh, at the top level, right, those are political appointee jobs and those clean house and come in and they're expected to represent the political priorities of the administration. But you have a vast bureaucracy underneath yeah. that of career civil servants um, whose jobs are just to kind of go out and execute the program of, of the government. Um, and so it's, it's tough to say what exactly um, this guy's role would be. I, I get you, though. I hear you out, though. Your broader point is well taken, that he is more of a Nixon, Nixonian type of person. So similar to what we're doing before with, you know, alternatively casting uh, Matthew McConaughey in the role of Tom Cruise, who would you prefer to have seen in this instead? Maybe, I don't know, John Goodman? John Goodman came to mind for some reason. Oh, because he plays that kind of role a lot. You know, who is a really, you know, who is a really good in this, in, in a very similar part. Um, and actually the counterculturalness was, uh, was part of the character. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in Charlie Wilson's war playing Gust, Gust Avogadros, who was the the CIA person who sort of suggested all suggested arming the Mujahideen uh, in Afghanistan and kind of put together the the series of arms deals um, to do it because he was not definitely not a uh, a Yale. By the way, you know, early history of the CIA all went to Yale. Um, he's he and he was not that background, the patrician waspy background because he was you know. Greek and and working class and and um, all all of these things and also sort of set in motion uh, set in motion this kind of disastrous series of events and then kind of detached from it uh, mm-hmm. I guess it took place I guess it took place a little later but it was a similar similar sort of character for what it's worth yeah and that guy has a mustache. Yeah, the the Philip Seymour Hoffman character. Yeah, yeah. But well, it's and actual like, and actual Gus uh, Avrakotos had a mustache, uh, um, although a, a slimmer one, I think, than the one that Philip Seymour Hoffman boasts in that movie. Um, Somewhat, I think, right? Um, yeah, uh, although about the same. He looks pretty similar, actually. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's like a, pretty. It's yeah. It's funny when you Google him, you get a lot of pictures of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, seriously. Who else is that true about? Not a lot of people. <laughs> but oh, so you're saying as, as Tom Truman, Truman Capote, as, maybe Schaefer. Who would no, I have Schaefer, as Schaefer? As Schaefer, like Philip Seymour Hoffman as the Schaefer character. Uh, maybe not quite as old as he was in Charlie Wilson's War, but not, uh, but certainly older than the actor who played Schaefer. What about Vincent Carthizer? Yeah, another good one. Like, he, I think like, he could play this, the Schaefer part, the sort of creepy institutional guy who's like methods or, or um, 
or and this is Pete Campbell from Mad Men, who like looks can look can pull off looking conservative, or at least looking like somebody who would have no qualms about you know arming a, a right wing militia to kill a whole bunch of legitimate semi legitimate communists. Yeah, actually, any of the brown haired men from Mad Men. Yeah. Right? They kind of did the work for you in that show. Harry, Harry like, Crane also would yeah. be would be one who would go. You know, yeah, they, that's they are, they already picked that one up with Glow when they were like, oh, we should put Harry Crane in this. Mad Men already did our work. Where are we going to find a kind of blustering, in like a blusteringly temperate asshole to play the like bad husband in this? <laughs> right. Oh yeah, Mad Men picked like every cast member can do that from Mad Men. <laughs> so. <laughs> Let's just pick one of them. Yeah, it's a, it's, uh, it's an embarrassment of riches, right? Yeah, Rich, indeed, uh, indeed. Rich Sommer, the name of that actor, by the way. Oh, okay, Rich Sommer. He's good. I like yeah. him. Uh, who else could play? So, who could play the part of Schaefer? Um, uh, Terry Crews. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well, because that's the thing is that when you're saying American, you're also, I mean. Okay, so I'm opening a can of worms here, but when you're saying American in the context that this movie is called American Made, you're really saying white American. Sure. <laughs> yeah, because mm-hmm. what you're yeah. saying is like from the standpoint of kind of privileged isolation where nobody can really touch you because of the ocean and the nuclear weapons, everything that Dennis Leary talks about in uh, No Cure for Cancer. You know, we got the bombs. We got the bombs. All the reasons that Americans, you know, there's this perception that Americans have all these reasons that they can do silly things and no one will ca- hold them accountable for them because of the oceans around them, their military strength, and also just sort of like uh, their boorishness and their sort of inability to take feedback. And uh, and that this is characteristic of white America uh, because it is protected by those bombs and those oceans and is not kind of like trapped within them uh, in 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 a sort of uh, larger rubric of relative oppression. Uh, and and but there's the other side of it too, which is that you could see it as sort of true real America as opposed to sort of discontented America or kind of broken America or America that isn't working. But I guess, I mean, even to say all that, what it brings back to me is something that Mark said, which is this idea of the South. Because I, when I think of like, when someone says American made to me and when someone starts sort of criticizing America, I mean, I'm from New Jersey and, and you know, I live in New England. I think of either this sort of elite uh, elite institutional aspects of America or like suburbia and sort of idyllic suburbia, which is not Southern. You know, the, the idyllic suburbia, suburbia in the South is like a relatively recent phenomenon relative to like idyllic suburbia in other parts of the country that were more prosperous in the early to mid 20th century because they were not recovering from being pillaged and ravaged by fire in the previous generation. Um, I mean, is that a fair thing to say that sort of like, that this sort of uh, the relative lack of contentment and and prosperity that Tom Cruise enjoys in the beginning of this movie, I think of that as not characteristic of American as the kind of thing that you would make fun of or put down or say is wrong because that that kind of American has to be associated with like having too many choices for what kind of burger to eat and Tom Cruise doesn't live that kind of life. But the South isn't really like that and hasn't been that really like – I mean it is like that a little bit more now with like the Sun Belt and the kind of birth of Southern manufacturing and, and kind of companies moving down there. But like back in the 70s and the 60s when you're still dealing with like civil rights and all the conflict down there, I mean you're like – you're like your granddaddy was bow hunting for food in a lot of these places. Your daddy might have been when he was a kid. So it's like – is is it still American that his wife was a KFC waitress who has her first chance at any sort of like reasonable sense of self ownership through drug money? 
right? Like, like is that still American? It, uh, that well, American. It kind of, in 2017, it kind of feels that way. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. With, with the lack of upward mobility and the enormous drug problem that we have right now. Oh, yeah. this is going dark. Well, it is. I mean, it's a dark movie. It's funny because it, it's not as it's not a darker movie. You would expect the movie to be much darker. Well, I mean, one of the ways that it it stays out of that territory, I think, like that that it keeps from being dark, is it doesn't really show anyone using drugs and the consequences, the the like the personal uh, or social consequences of like drug the drug epidemic and sort of the drug the drug yeah. problem, right? Like we don't the, see Nino Brown. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> uh, and though that there is, you know, when it's talked about. When it's talked about, like it's it's um, uh, you know a a news clip about an epidemic of a new kind of cocaine called crack, or um, you know uh, Nancy Reagan saying just say no, you know uh, to drugs and alcohol. Interestingly, which is not the way it's remembered in the popular consciousness. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's like why is it all just say no to drugs but not alcohol? It's like she said no to alcohol also, but nobody listened to that. So, sorry, I don't want to bring back temperance. I, mean, I interrupted not, you. Not, not personally. She didn't say no. To that, you know. <laughs> oh, that's a lot. That's a hard. Mm. Talk about going dark, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, between it and Kingsman and this, geez, we need something to brighten us up. <laughs> What's next week? Blade Runner. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what brightens us up? It's the ninth anniversary of the Overthinking. Oh, that's so nice. And and uh, let's just wrap our, our discussion of American Made and say, like, if anyone wants to share any uh, Overthinking It podcast anniversary messages, we'd love to share them with, uh, with everybody. So hit us up at podcast at overthinkingit.com. You can send an email, a voice memo, whatever you want. Or call the voicemail, 203-285-6401. Longtime listeners will remember me saying that uh, in the early days, saying that number in the early days of the podcast. It's still a thing. It still exists. You can call, and we'd love to hear. Uh, we'd love to hear anything that you have to say on this auspicious occasion. All right, uh, thanks very much for listening, and uh, let us know what you think about American Made in the comments. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. <laughs>